This is the Podfecta Podcast, the official podcast of the Podfecta Podcasting Conference. I'm David Hooper. Let me tell you about Jen Briney. I met Jen when we were at Podcast Movement, Fort Worth, Texas. It wasn't until after the event that I met her, though. We were on the same floor of the hotel. We packed up, caught an elevator down to the lobby. That's when I started talking to her. She said, yeah, I'm a podcaster. Talk about politics, about Congress. She handed me her card, her podcast, Congressional Dish. Thought it was going to be a little bit stuffy, I'll be honest with you. But stuffy it was not. It was a different kind of political podcast. Also a different kind of podcast because how it's funded. When you think of podcasting, you think of self-funded. You think of people selling products. You think of sponsorship, people taking advertising money. Jen doesn't do any of those things. Her podcast is 100% fan-funded. She came to Podfect in Nashville 2018 to talk about how she did that. This is Jen Briney from Congressional Dish. How are you guys enjoying Podfecta so far? Good sandwiches, huh? (laughs) Well, like David said, my name is Jennifer Briney and I host Congressional Dish. I'm kind of curious who I'm talking to today. So can you guys raise your hands if you already have a podcast? Okay. And can you raise your hands if you are thinking of starting one? Okay. And can you raise your hands if you're already making money on your podcast? Okay. All right. So let's talk about getting paid. Really quick, I'm excited to tell you guys about how I got to be a full-time podcaster because it definitely was a long road. I started my podcast in late 2012, so it's been about five and a half years. What my podcast is, you should probably know, is it really started because I wanted to know what was going on in our government because I knew that we weren't being told the most important things the way I see our government. There's the executive branch, which gets a lot of attention, especially lately. And then there's Congress, which is where we have most of our power. It's who decides what happens with our money. And yet we know very little about what goes on there. So it affects us the most. We have the most power there, but we don't know what happens. So I started looking into bills and laws, and now I have a podcast about it. And so my journey to becoming a podcaster actually started about 15 years ago. It was well before I started the podcast. And it started when I was studying abroad in Germany in 2003. Now, at the time, I was a 21-year-old idiot from Orange County, like didn't care about politics at all. And I was escaping a bad breakup. And so I decided to take advantage of the student exchange program at my college. And I went to Germany in 2003. Little did I know that while I was there, our country is going to start a war in Iraq. So it was very interesting for me to go to Iraq and see that happen as basically a European. And I, I didn't realize that it was any different. You know, when I was there and like, for example, Tony Blair, he was getting up in front of the British Parliament and giving very interesting debates where, you know, in British Parliament, they yell at each other. It's fascinating. And what was different about Europe is that we canceled class and we went and we all watched TV together. And then when we went to the bars that evening, they had soccer on one TV. They had the debate on the other TV with the sound on the debate. And people would hear my accent, the movie accent, as they said. They knew I was American. They would ask me, why is your country starting this war? I didn't know. And so that was really embarrassing to me. And so there was one day in particular where my life completely changed And it was three days after the war started. I was in Rome, Italy, and I was in the Colosseum, and I noticed some helicopters circling above. Just I figured it was like tourists. 
But it turns out when we left the Coliseum, there was a mob of people that when we found a street that was overlooking it, it was a giant anti-war protest. And we were on one side of this protest and our hotel was on the other and we were very American. So we decided to just stay on this street where we could observe everything but not be involved. And for hours and hours and hours, the people kept coming. Turned out the final toll was about a million people. And then that evening, we tried to go out in the main square and the restaurants and bars, and they wouldn't let us in for our own safety. So I didn't realize how much that affected me until well after the fact, but that was the first day where I really asked myself, what are we doing and what's our role in the world? And every time I got an answer, I had 50 more questions. And so when I got home, um, coming home was the hardest part, actually, Going to Germany, I just kind of assumed that you guys were having the same exact experience that I was. But then when I came home, it was my senior year of college. And I remember, you know, expecting to come back and talk to all my friends about the war and what their experiences were. And everybody wanted to talk about the movie Old School. You remember that movie? Great movie. (laughs) It's one of my favorites. Not more important than war. And so... (laughs) So yeah, I um, felt really isolated. And so for that last year, I was a communications major and I really threw myself into my studies. And I got to research what messages we were being told and how the media works. And I went to school in Los Angeles at Loyola Marymount, which is a feeder school into the entertainment industry. So I was trained in advertising. I know the tricks. They were training me to do them to you, but it backfired on me. I learned all the tricks and I was disgusted by it. But I did get that education, and I loved that year. I had no social life, but I didn't care. I enjoyed the research. I graduated. I needed health insurance, and I went to the corporate world. <laughs> and, um, but the thing was, as I was in the job, I was working while my husband was in grad school, there was a station called Air America Radio. And this was the first time I really listened to podcasts. Now, if you guys remember, who remembers Air America? Okay, a few people. This was like, it was the liberal station, let's just say it. Um, A lot of people got their start there. This is what Senator Al Franken, or former Senator Al Franken, he was at Air America before he became a senator. Rachel Maddow got her start here. Jake Unger got his start. Uh, Mark Maron, Sam Cedar. And there was a lady on that show, on that um, network named Randy Rhodes. And as I was working in my corporate job, I would sneak away and do all of the jobs or all the tasks that got me away from my boss and I would listen to her podcast. And what I liked about her is she was talking about Congress. I had never considered Congress before. And she encouraged her audience when she was talking specifically about the Affordable Care Act. They were writing it at the time. And she said, you guys, just look at the bill. It's not that hard. The table of contents makes sense. You just look up the codes to find out what the current law is, compare it, you'll figure it out. So she really gave me the idea of the first time that a regular person can look at these laws and understand them. So taking her advice, that's the first time I looked. And it was also the first time where I went, this is a place I could fit. You know, this is something maybe I should look into. And then they went out of business. So I had absolutely no goals. And so I decided for a few years to try and be one of those blissful, ignorant people. Maybe I could just turn it off. So in 2008, my then my now husband and I, we sold everything we owned. We moved to Europe. We backpacked for three months. We went to Hawaii. We I sold timeshares and I waited tables and and he was waiting tables too. And in fact, what I learned through that 
is I tried so hard to turn it off, couldn't turn it off. So this is me as a waitress in Halloween of 2008, right before the election. I'm dressed like Sarah Palin. Took pictures with all the McCains. Um, But that's where I learned that this was in me and it wasn't going away. So this is 2008. Flash forward to 2012. Um, I was living in Boston at the time. I obviously move a lot. I was living in Boston. Husband had a good job in the solar industry. I had just gotten a job at Weight Watchers because, fun fact, I can't control how much I put into my face. (laughs) So I've been on Weight Watchers for 12 years. So they had just hired me and I was in training and I got a phone call. And it was my brother-in-law and he said, your dad has had a heart attack and he's okay, but you need to come home to California. So I got on the first flight And it wasn't until I walked into the hospital that I realized just how bad it was. He was alive, but he actually flatlined five times. And in the process, this is crazy. This like doesn't happen. In the process of bringing him back, the defibrillator, the shock was so, it had to be some kind of malfunction, but they likened it to a lightning strike. The shock was so strong that it blew out both of his shoulders. And so when they went in there to fix that, both of his shoulders became dust. So that's the bruise that he had. That's actually about a week in. That's when he would actually let me take a picture. Um, But he spent 17 days in UCLA Medical Center getting stents put in his heart and having both of his shoulders replaced. So um, I decided to move home for about a month, obviously, because my dad was in so much pain. And this was actually after he got out of UCLA Medical Center. And when you're in a situation like this, you know, my dad, my dad is like a CFO, like a very corporate executive guy, and he's a conservative Republican and not too emotional. But recovering from this, he was high <laughs> like for a year. So, um, so while I was living with him, he looks at his daughter who had graduated college with honors eight years ago and is still just kind of messing around. And he goes... And he, you know, like I said, he's a CFO. He wanted to be a marine biologist, though. And he goes, Jennifer, what are you doing with your life? What is it that you want to do? And I, you know, we're in tears. And I go, well, I want to start a podcast. And, of course, he says, what's a podcast? And so I told him. And then he said, well, what do you want to do that about? What's the subject? I'm like, well, I think Congress. He goes, no one gives a shit about Congress. And I'm like, well, I think they would if they knew what was going on. And so through a lot of tears, dad says, you know what? I don't get it, but it sounds like you do. And I think you should go for it and I'll help you in any way I can. And so, you know, for you dads out there, (laughs) the lesson you should take from this is that if you want to inspire your wandering kids, drugs, you should try it. (laughs) Just kidding. Happy 420. (laughs) But yeah, so I was there for a month, and what I decided to do is I downloaded 30 episodes of Daniel J. Lewis's The Audacity to Podcast. I don't think he's still podcasting. If I had to do it today, I would probably choose Dave Jackson's School of Podcasting. But I downloaded all the episodes that were for newbies, took notes, did what he did, or did what he said, and a month later, I launched the podcast using this amazing tech. (laughs) They don't even sell this anymore. But... um. The most important thing to me was to just get started, and it was the best decision I ever made. If I waited until I had the money for the tech or knew what I was doing, I probably wouldn't have started. It was the emotion of having that conversation with my dad that got me to go. So the deal I made with my husband, because I had been doing, I call them just for cashies, 
which are jobs that's just like, I just need to pay the rent. And my husband had a job at the, at the time. And like I said, I worked when he was in grad school and he said, do this for a year. See if you like podcasting. See if anyone cares about Congress. And then we'll figure out how to make money after a year. And in that year, I found out that the answer to both questions was yes. I had a small but dedicated audience and I enjoyed doing it. And so I decided a year in that I was going to do a listener-supported model basically because I had to. I mean, to be honest about it, at the time, it wasn't a conscious decision. I had 250 subscribers, basically, or at least I thought I did. And um, with that number, you know, the the advertisers, they want 5,000 downloads per episode. So um, a year in, that's when I decided I would do listener-supported. But it's really become something I'm passionate about now. And the name I like to use for it, and I have to say that I did not invent this, John C. Dvorak and Adam Curry of No Agenda, they, they created this name and really this system. If you want to see the masters at work, No Agenda is where you should go. But the model that they invented is the value for value model. And it's also basically the honor system. The way I describe, is it, describe it is it's trusting your audience to return the value they receive from the podcast you create for them. And that's important, that for them part, because there's a bunch of ways for you guys to, to monetize your podcast. You know, there's selling your own products. So if you're an author, you can have a podcast in order to sell your books. That works great if you've already got something going. I wasn't in that situation. You can put up a paywall. Not the best thing to do, though, to close off your content if you're trying to get more people to listen to it. There's also sponsors. So you can find a company that'll just sponsor your whole episode for you. But the one that I'm noticing more and more that everybody is going for is advertising. And I don't like what I see in this industry, to be completely honest with you. Because here's the thing about ad- advertising. Advertising is the sale of your listener's time to a group or company that wants to influence their decisions. You're selling your audience. And so, and here's another part of it. They don't even enjoy it. <laughs> the truth is, you know, there's a lot of people in podcasting right now that are saying stuff like, I put ads in my show, but people are really entertained by, by listening to me try to read them. Or It's all justifications for something that you know your audience hates. You know, Your audience might tolerate it, they might put up with it, but they don't enjoy it. So I just didn't want to do it just out of my passion for disliking advertising so much. And there's a lot of downsides to it. You know, First of all, it damages the quality of your show because people hate it. It also, and this is important for what I'm doing in particular, but also for all of us, it diminishes trust and authenticity. Because if you think about it, people know if you're taking an ad that you are willing to be paid to say something. And so my audience, where they know that I won't be paid to say anything, if I tell you that I love Southwest Airlines, because I do, it's because I love Southwest Airlines. You know, It's not because they're paying me to say that. I also, if I tell you that there was a $4 billion blank check that was signed into law on January 22nd for the intelligence community, you're going to believe me because no one's paying me to say something. And that's also true. So I think that it's important that if you want to build trust, you shouldn't allow yourselves to be paid to tell people things. Also, advertising is more work for you. You have to find the advertiser, negotiate with the advertiser, sign contracts with the advertiser, discuss what you're going to say with the advertiser, see if you're pleasing your advertiser. I don't have to do that. And then this I am convinced of, and this is the controversial statement. I am convinced that advertisers are shortchanging podcasters, and this is why I say that. 
So a lot of advertising is on the CPM model, which means that you get paid based on thousands of people who listen. So for instance, this is the category that my show is in. My show is still not huge. So if I were to run a 10-second ad, I would get $6 for every 1,000 per- people. Um, if I were to do 30, a 30-second 30 ad in the middle of my show, it would be $12 per 1,000. And if I were to run a minute-long ad in the middle of my show, it would be $17 per 1,000 people. So I was curious. If I were to abandon the value-for-value value model and go for advertising, how many ads would I have to put in with these averages? Turns out I would have to have 22 ads of each length, which means that I would have to have 22 10-second ads, 22 30-second ads, 22 60-second ads, which would equal 36 minutes of ads in my show. So I think the thing that we should learn from this, or at least I have, is that advertisers are getting too much out of podcasters because our audience, they're worth more than this. And podcasters are selling your listeners' time for a lot less than they're worth. So I, um, I'm obviously not a fan of advertising, <laughs> but I am a huge fan of the value-for-value value model. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, you develop a deeper connection with the listeners because of that trust and auth- authenticity. You can also start earning faster with, with much smaller audiences. I started getting about $25 a month. Um, that was right when I put my PayPal button up, and that paid for my hosting immediately. I had 250 downloads per episode. So you can start earning a lot, lot sooner. Um, also, stats don't matter. How many of you host with Libsyn? Okay. <laughs> so you guys might remember, and I love Libsyn. I'm not going anywhere. But last summer, they changed their stats, and those of us, or how they calculate stats, and those of us with large file sizes were hit really hard. And so overnight, my audience was essentially just disappeared, cut in half. Now, it definitely hurt my pride, but unlike people that are paid per thousand, it didn't hurt my paycheck. I was able to go right through that where other people were pretty concerned. They had to renegotiate contracts and and it didn't affect me at all. And so that's another part. There's no meetings and no contract negotiations. And there's also no limit to your income. If you want to earn more income with this with your audience size right now, I mean, you're going to have to put in more ads or I don't know. But for me, for the value for value model, what I like is that it's all about the value I'm providing to each individual person. So as my show gets bigger, in general, my income does too. So I'm a big fan of this. And then the last but most important, you're accountable only to your listeners. There is no one funding source that can say, hey, you stop saying this or I'm pulling your funding. Because think about it. If people want to attack Sean Hannity, what do they do? They go for the advertisers. Because that's who can apply the pressure to the journalists. They can't do that to me. And here's also the best part. The audience... They react, they, they interact with me in such a cool way. So this is my Venmo right now. I got $20 because someone said happy birthday. Um, I got $22.32 because I'm currently in the process of reading a 2,232-page law that was passed in under 36 hours. And so that's what this is all about, penny per page of that gosh darn omnibus funding bill. And then I got $15 from someone who said congressional dish, rock on and keep being a real patriot. Figure you should get some of your tax dollars back coming from a United States Navy sailor. Isn't that cool? And here's what I love about this. These people might not have written to me, but it was a note that they put attached to their contributions. So these are people I might not have ever heard from, but I'm having such a great interaction with my audience because of this funding model. And if I was advertising to them, I might not have ever heard from these three. 
Now, there are a few downsides. I'm not going to tell you it's all perfect. One is that it's inconsistent funding. It really is. It goes up and down for reasons that are just beyond me. I feel like, you know, my, my funding went down in March. Don't know why. I feel like I've done some really, really good work lately. Some people think it's because it's tax day. I don't know what it is, but that happens all the time. There's no rhyme or reason to it that I can see, and that is something that I struggle with it financially and I struggle with it emotionally, which is why in the beginning it's very important to try and get subscribers. These are people that contribute to you automatically and monthly. You can really only budget with your subscriber money because the one-time donations, they go up and down. You can't count on them. So subscribers are key to, to fighting that. Also, the pitch can be really uncomfortable, honestly. It, in the beginning, it felt a lot like begging, and I really hated doing it. It's only now, after doing this for five years, that I, I believe every word that I'm saying, so the pitch has gotten easier. But in the beginning, it does feel like you're that guy on the street corner being like, give me a quarter, sir. Like, it's not, it's not a comfortable thing at first. And then the accounting is tricking because you're going to have money coming in from different sources, and you have to take care of your own taxes. There's no W-2s in this world. And so the key to making this work is you need to create a valuable show. And here's what I mean by that. First, you need to decide if you're doing a podcast or a show, because really a podcast is simply a digital audio file that's made available on the internet. There is a podcast out there that is a guy yelling no. That's it. (laughs) But if you do a show, a show is a spectacle or a display of something, usually an impressive one, or public entertainment. That's my goal. I want to give someone a show, not just a podcast. Anyone can do a podcast. And then what's valuable? Well, valuable is something that is useful or important. So if you put that together, the key is to create an impressive display of public entertainment that's useful or important. And you can do this with any topic. You know, like if you like football, for instance, no one cares that the Titans is your favorite team. No one. However, If you were to interview Marcus Mariota, the quarterback, or the coach, and you were able to get some insight that can help someone with their fantasy football scores, now you've just given them something that's useful. You know, in fact, um, in the sports category, the fantasy footballers, they keep cleaning up at these awards shows because they're providing something useful. They're helping nerds like me to beat all their friends in fantasy football. So, and you can do it with any topic, but if you ask yourself, is this useful? Is it important? If the answer is yes, you're providing value. And here's what I do, or I try to, the value I try to provide is um, I provide hard to find but desired information. People want to know what's happening in Congress is what I've discovered, but they don't know where to find it. They, I also save them time because no one wants to watch these super long hearings. I also provide context because if I tell you that the reason we're in Syria is because of UN 2254, that does you no good at all if you don't know what that is. And I actually don't know what that is that yet. That's why I was researching on the plane. So my next episode is where I'll find that out. And then I also do a fun format because NPR is fine for information, but it's kind of dry. And I do like to have more fun with that because you have to laugh at this stuff or you're going to go insane. And so to really make this work, the key to, like, to the, you know, the nuts and bolts of how to do it, you need to make it easy for them to give you money. And there's a lot of different ways. And the key is, It doesn't matter what your favorite is. You let them choose. Sign up for all of them. So I'm going to go through these one by one in the order of like my preference. But again, doesn't matter what my preference is. But there's Patreon. We're all pretty aware of Patreon. This allows content creators to get paid by their audiences. What I like about Patreon is it's the only platform that allows per episode 
subscription models. So like what I do is I have my per month people go to PayPal and then I say if you want to donate per episode, go to Patreon. They also have per month too if that's what you want. They take credit and debit card payments. There's a private feed included, which is pretty cool. Um, so if you did want to lock up some content just for your community, that's already paid for. And there's excellent customer support. The whole back end, doing the accounting, it's a breeze with Patreon. It's really nice. The cons are they have high fees. They're the highest fees. But like I said, I'm getting more out of Patreon than I am the others. So I'm not exactly mad about it. But the fees are a 5% Patreon fee on top of the 3 to 5 processing or 3 to 5 percent processing fee and it's a quarter to transfer it to your bank in general i take home about 91 percent. they take nine percent so that's higher than everything else but i i'm okay with it then there's paypal we're all aware of paypal they take one-time donations and monthly subscriptions you'd want to set up two different um buttons on your website to make that easier for people they also take credit and debit card payments my, my problems with PayPal is they randomly drop people. Still can't tell you why it happens. So you need to find a system that works for you for dealing with that. And then their fees are moderate, 3% plus a 30 cent transaction fee. Hits low donor dollars or low dollar donors hard. But for the larger ones, that's fine. Um, I also, I love paper checks. There's no middlemans. They come straight into your mailbox. They're great. And I love the people that write out the checks with handwritten notes. Like those just make me so happy. And there's no middleman fees. This is also, you can do one-time donations, but you can do monthlies with these too. You use your bank's online bill pay function and people can send you monthly checks or bi-weekly checks or weekly checks. I got people that do all kinds of things for their own reasons, but you can set this up regularly too. A lot of people skip this. Um, the cons are that it has to be physically deposited. And then I do consider a necessary expense about $100 a year for a P.O. box because you do not want to give random people on the internet your home address. So that's worth the money. Um, there's also, this is my favorite, online transfers. There's no middleman fees most of the time for these. You can also, just like with your checks, get one-time donations or have monthly subscriptions and I don't see any downsides to these at all, especially with this app. This is Zelle. This is a relatively new app, but it's something that the big banks are setting up, and it's so easy to use. So it does the bank-to-bank transfers. It has recurring payment options. It's the only one right now that makes that really easy. It's an email address identification, so you don't have to give out your bank account number. It's just your email. And then it's super easy for you and your listeners to enroll in. There's also Pop Money. I have this up here just because so many people have heard of it. Um, it's basically the same thing as Zelle, but you can see down here, it, they charge your listeners a buck to give you money. So it's better for them to do the free options, but if they want to use it, it's free for you to set up an account. You might as well. There's also Venmo. Now, Venmo is an interesting one right now because it's kind of a gray area, but because it's not meant for business, but because this is a voluntary relationship, I feel like we're allowed to use it. And so the transfers are free from Venmo, bank accounts, and debit cards. There's a 3% fee if people want to pay with credit cards. And that might sound like PayPal because it is PayPal. <laughs> a lot of people don't know that. Venmo is PayPal. And there's a $0.25 cent fee to transfer it to your bank. It's not that bad. This is another one where you just have to give out an email address or a screen name identification. And people... I started taking Venmo payments about a month ago and people are loving it. I'm getting them all the time. So this is one to take advantage of. Then there's Bitcoin for the people that don't like using actual money. 
and they take one-time donations and monthly subscriptions and they allow anonymous contributions. Some people do think that I'm going to end up in some CIA black site and they don't want anything. They don't want anyone knowing that they're helping me with this. And so they want to contribute anonymously and which is scary, but like, okay, however you're paying me, I'll take it. And, um, the cons are obviously there's a huge fluctuation in the value. There's a wait time to transfer it to your bank if you're going to do that. And the fee structure changes all the time and it's confusing. But what I do with my Bitcoin, I let them sit there and watch the show. I'm not really doing anything with them, but it's nice to have if I need it. And then, so how do I get people to do this? You know, I'm providing the value. How do I get people to actually give me money? Well, the pitch, and I'm, I'm constantly working on this, so this is not in stone, but the number one thing I think is most important is just be honest. I tell people where I'm at. If I have a weird drop in funding, I tell people. If I've had a good week, I tell people. I just tell them exactly what I'm feeling about how the funding is going, and I think the honesty about my business is helping. People feel like they're in the back room, you know? Um, you also want to explain the business model every time because it's a new concept for people. Getting something that's essentially for free and paying for it is not something that's natural. So every single episode, in a sentence or two, you do need to tell them what the value for value model is. You need to highlight the value you're providing. I usually pick one thing for each episode that I'm providing um, in that that pitch because the thing is, oh, and you also need to li- list the payment options But the thing is, you want to keep it short because, like I said, everyone hates advertising. And when you're really looking at it, you're advertising for yourself right now. It's still an ad. So make it as short as you can and make it painless. And then this is not a solid rule. In fact, I broke it in my last um, episode. But avoid pitching in the intro because imagine you're a new listener and you listen to a podcast and the first thing they do is ask you for money. It's really a turnoff. I do it when I have a big drop and I need funding because what I generally do is I get right into the episode so that people get the content right away. Then I do the pitch and then I do my thank yous. But some people don't make it to the pitch, you know? So every once in a while, maybe once every six months, I'll put it in the beginning. But as a rule, people don't need to know this in the beginning in order to get your your payments. They really don't. Make sure you're you're hooking them before you ask them for something. And then this is the number one most important thing. You have to show gratitude. And how you do that is completely up to you. The way I do it is I dedicate the entire second half of my show to my audience. So if people send me something, I not only thank them, but then I will read their notes and respond to them. Um, And that's why my episodes, if you look right now, my episodes are ridiculously long. But it's a podcast. It doesn't matter. You know, so the content, the, the stuff I research, it's usually about an hour, hour and a half. But my last episode was three hours and 15 minutes because I took the time to respond to every single person. That's working for me. There's also Patreon makes it easy for you to give people perks if you want to send them stuff. I personally don't send anything because I just feel like any time that I'm spending sending stuff in the mail is time I'm not spending creating the podcast. I don't think that they're paying me for a tote bag. But if you guys do have merchandise you want to give away, Patreon makes that super, super easy for you. But the number one most important thing I want to get across here is you have to appreciate your audience. You have to tell them that you appreciate them because your show will not exist without them. And so um, just so you guys know, I'm just going to go through my production process really quick so you guys can see kind of what I do to provide the value. And so I have two episodes a month and because it's the value for value model, which allowed me to go full time, you know, and so now this is my full time job. I don't have a just for cashy job. I've been doing this now 
since 2014. That's when I was able to do this full time, making a real income. So um, I have two week processes. My first week is research week. That's where I pick my topic. That's where I collect all the bills, the laws, the hearings, the articles, the documents, and I just put them on a big list. It's basically my to-do list. Then I start going through the to-do list and collecting all the information. And then I take care of, as I eloquently put it, the business crap. That's what I'll do in the first week. So if you email me, I'm probably going to email you back during my research week because I don't even check email in my production week because this is what I'm focusing on creating the show. And so what I do is I take all that information that I found and read in the first week I put it in a loose script. I don't, I don't do it word for word, but I have to have a structure because when I look at the transcript of a sound clip, like I said before, there's a thing, UN2254. What the hell is that? So I go through and I highlight all those things and I say, this is something I don't know what it is. I don't know what this is. I research that so I can set up the clip so when you hear what the congressmen are saying, you are just as in the know as they are. So that's why I have a script. I also take my sound clips and put them in order beforehand so that when I'm ready to fire, they're just right there. I don't have to go searching for anything. I record the main episode first, although not really. Sometimes I do the thank yous first. It just depends on who my guest is that week because I have guests in the thank yous now. And, um, and then I post the show. This is usually some weekend work, but I do have some help. So I hired uh, Pro Podcast Solutions, which I'm very happy with with my audio editing. Um, they do the sound clips, the transcripts, transcripts of those clips and they put the show together. I have a virtual assistant for my show notes. So you know how I said that I collect documents and articles and hearings and all that stuff. She takes that disgusting mess of an Evernote and turns it into what you're finding on congressionaldish.com because I give my listeners all my sources. And if I read a bill, I highlight you know the different provisions too so you can check my work because who am I? Um, so I feel like I should earn people's trust. And then when my virtual assistants are done, I go in there and I'm the one who posts the show. So it's a full-time job. I mean, it's, I work most weekends and yeah. Um, and this is the thing about podcasting full-time. What it's given me most of all is freedom. You know, I have freedom in content. I have freedom in my life. I go to Costco at 2 p.m. on Tuesdays. No Saturdays for me. <laughs> so, and it's, it's been a life changer. I sleep until nine, I sleep until 9 a.m. every single day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's what I wanted when I when I hated my corporate job. It was the fact that I had to be there at 8 a.m. And I'm like, I still need three more hours of sleep until I'm good. So it gives me that I'm able to do what I love. That senior year where I was researching all the time. That's what I do for a living. It's the best. I have more time at home with my husband and my dog. And I do less laundry because I very rarely change my clothes. (laughs) There are a couple downsides, though. One is that it's physically lonely, so I am home alone a lot. Even when I do the thank yous with other people, all of that time preparing is just me. I'm sure a lot of you guys can relate to that. When you go full-time, that's a bigger problem. It's also professionally isolating because I don't have any friends in my personal life that do what I do. You know, so when I get a Twitter barrage of people that are really mad at me, there's no one in my day-to-day life that understands what that feels like. So that's been a little tough. And then the hardest thing that I'm still struggling with is that the show can become your whole life. And I know that people that work from home feel that, but I feel like it's harder with a podcast because if your friends listen to your podcast, if your family listens to your podcast, it seeps into your personal life too. Like when I go to kickball, there's always someone that's like, well, on your last episode, you did da 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 I'm like, I'm here to play kickball. 
<laughs> don't talk to me about this right now. So um, there's a few things that I have to deal with, but I wouldn't trade this life for anything. Um, and so if you're thinking of going full time, my, my first bit of advice is actually to don't go full time in the beginning, but get yourself adjust for cashy. You actually can quit the corporate job. And I know that's a scary thing to do. But what I found is when I quit the corporate job that I hated and started waiting tables, I made just as much money, but the work didn't follow me home. And so in the beginning, I was waiting tables. That's how I was able to keep this going. And so I would wait tables. There was no emails to deal with. There was nothing that followed me home so I could go and do my podcast. And it really worked for me. It kept me going until it was financially the time for me to to do this full time. Um, Also, keep your expenses low. I know we all want a team, but until you have enough subscribers, that's the key part. You have to have enough subscribers to pay them because, again, the one-time contributions are going to go like this. But once you have enough subscribers to hire someone like Pro Podcast Solutions or a virtual assistant or whoever you need, it's a subscriber money that you have to look at. And also expect to work long hours for the first few years in particular, because in the first few years, I did all the editing and I did all the show notes. I did absolutely everything. But that actually really helped me in the long run, because now that I have people who are helping me, I can speak the lingo. You know, if my editor didn't want to change the volume, I can be like, hey, I know how easy that is, you know, which has never happened. But (laughs) but the point is, if you know what it takes to do the job, you're a lot more qualified to hire good people to do it for you. Also, ask your audience for help. You never know who's listening. Like, I was doing my own episode level cover art and I was really bad at it. I have no artistic abilities. And I said that on the air. This guy, Brian from Pennsylvania, I've still never met him. He said, Hey, I'm an artist. I would love to do all the cover art for you. Three years later, he still is. And he's doing a great job. So, we're going to start doing some merchandising soon. And now he's going to start making some money from this. We've built a partnership. I trust him. I've never paid him a dime. Um, and last go to podcasting events. Cause like I said, and like, obviously I don't have to tell you guys you're doing it. You're doing everything right. But, um, like I said, this is professionally isolating. And so when I come to stuff like this, like I flew here, I don't live here. I live in Oakland. So I flew here because this was another opportunity for me to be in a room with podcasters. And it's good for me every single time. The next few that are coming up, obviously you're here at Podfecta, do all of the local meetups. The podcast movement is the next one. That's in the end of July. That's the biggest one. I never miss it. It's it, You have to go to podcast movement. And the other one that I never miss is PodFest in Florida. And I'm not just saying that because they're sponsoring this. I'm saying that because it's great for indie podcasters. It's such a loving conference. It makes me feel better. It feels like a big high school reunion. I just, I love PodFest. So those are the two that no matter what happens. Plus, it's in Florida in February. Like, yeah. There's no winter there. So, um, so yeah, go to these podcasting events because even if you're not sure what you're going to get out of it, you're going to make a new connection. You're going to end up on another podcast that makes your podcast bigger. You're going to land a guest that you never thought you could, la- you could land. Or you're just going to learn stuff. Every time I go to these, I learn. But that's, that's really, really important. Um, so, yeah. Again, my name is Jen Briney. You guys can email me. I'll get back to you eventually (laughs) on my research weeks. And you can also reach me easily at Jen Briney on Twitter and Instagram. That was Jen Briney, podcast Congressional Dish. If you haven't listened to that, absolutely check it out. She does a great job of bringing her personality into it. As I mentioned and as Jen talked about, 100% fan-funded congressionaldish.com is where to get more information about that. 
you're interested in organizing or attending a Podfecta event, more information about Podfecta events near you, podfecta.com. If you've got questions, comments, you want to reach out to me, you can do that via the form on my website, bigpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.